Hi, everyone. Welcome to Warden Tech Talks. I'm your host, Chris Ferrer, and today we're chatting with Stacey Brown Philpot. She has an incredible range of experience as a CEO, board director, and advisor. She spent nearly a decade leading global operations for Google's flagship products, then served as entrepreneur-in-residence at Google Ventures, leading strategic expertise to the firm's portfolio companies. She is the former CEO of TaskRabbit, the leading task management network connecting skilled taskers with clients to handle everyday services in the home. At TaskRabbit, she led a fast-growing startup into a global business, charting the course in a new industry and launching local operations in more than 100 major markets. In 2017, she then led the successful acquisition of TaskRabbit by the IKEA Group. Ranked by Business Insider as one of the 46 most important blacks in technology, Stacy is a frequent speaker on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and notably, she founded the Black Googler Network. Stacy is a founding member of SoftBank's Opportunity Fund, a 100 million venture fund established to invest in Black, Latinx, and Native American entrepreneurs. She is also on the board of directors for HP Inc., Nordstrom, Noom, StockX, Black Girls Code, and the Urban Institute. She holds a BS in economics from the Warden School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania and an MBA from the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. Thanks so much for joining us, Stacey. Thank you for having me. To kick things off, I'd love to start by talking about your insights on scaling organizations and strategy, especially at TaskRabbit, launching in more than 100 major markets in the US, United Kingdom, France, Germany, and many more locations across the globe. How did you scale your organization to do this? Yeah, well, it was quite a journey. I've always envisioned TaskRabbit being everywhere for everyone. I didn't imagine that there was anywhere in the world where a service like TaskRabbit shouldn't exist because we all need to make money. And there's a lot of people in our world who don't have access to real stable income earning opportunities. And TaskRabbit provided that. And we all have busy lives and things to do, and we could all use a little bit of help every once in a while or all the time. So I felt like there was an opportunity all over the world. And the question was, how do we get there? And so I remember our expansion really was going across the U.S. When I joined TaskRabbit, we were in eight cities in the U.S., and I felt that we could expand more, but what did it really mean? And so our first process of expansion really was thinking about what's the playbook? What makes a good market? And we quickly figured out that high dense areas would really help TaskRabbit grow. San Francisco and New York were two of our largest markets. The other thing that mattered was the generation of people that was living there, younger people, either early in the workforce and or early in their lives as married people or parents were also really important and working people who didn't have a whole lot of time. We also needed a pretty broad socioeconomic breadth of people. So we needed people who needed to earn some income and people who could afford to pay for it. So that was really interesting because that pretty much said we should be in pretty much all the coastal cities in the US, anywhere where there's a dense market, but what we learned in that process was that each market had its own unique circumstances. So subways in New York was a thing. And so it's hard to figure out, you know, what task you're supposed to do next if you don't have cell service underneath, <laughs> under the ground and where you're supposed to go. So how do you respond? 
we learned that driving in LA, we were worried that LA wasn't going to be a successful market because LA was so spread out. Are people going to want to drive? Well, it turns out most people don't want to drive. So they will pay whatever it costs for somebody to drive in LA. We were surprised at DC. Why is DC working so well? Well, DC has not only a transplant culture of people who come there for some period of time and don't have infrastructure, they don't have a family network and a support network, but it's also a service oriented culture of DC of like there's staffers who do things for people in government. So the concept of service was very easily understood. And then we started to expand to more cities in the US, smaller cities. And what made those cities work in addition to the things that I just talked about was the growth of the belief around the sharing economy and trusting people to do things for me that you know I may not otherwise trust and trusting the technology to make it safe. And so as the sharing economy became more popular, smaller cities grew at a faster rate because people now had this trust that this thing could happen. So I was most proud when we launched in Detroit, which is in the middle of the country, which is where I'm from, which would be a smaller city compared to some of the outer cities, but certainly had all those other factors and we got the trust factor happening. So then this made going international more easily understood. We certainly learned our things when we went to the UK, when we went to Canada, when we went to Spain and Germany and you know France, and I'm happy to talk about some of those things, but getting that playbook down and figuring out what's unique about each of these markets was really what helped us scale the business faster as we continued to grow. That's amazing. I mean, I really love kind of the theme of everywhere for everyone. And especially, you know, kind of this mission around helping folks who have, you know, some incredible skills around whether it's moving carpentry, you know, what have you, and, you know, kind of empowering them through this marketplace to connect with people that have those needs. And like you said, right, there are so many folks who are busy or just, you know, not great with plumbing or what have you, and would love for a professional actually to fix or help them out with things. I remember I was moving in San Francisco and hired some movers and they were incredibly helpful taking like a bookcase down multiple flights of stairs, which would have been a real nightmare for me and my partner at the time. And so it's just wonderful to see, right, the value that TaskRabbit creates. And also, you know, with the playbook and, you know, the really interesting quirks that you think about different cities that you're going into from LA to New York. And I'd love to hear a little bit more, you know, as you mentioned around the playbook and thinking about, okay, we're looking for high density. We're looking for, you know, what are the needs that people have? How do taskers get around from job to job and how that kind of was applied to, you know, the UK and Europe? And what are some of the interesting quirks that you noticed about those different areas? You know, your story brought up a story for me that I was going to share either way, but it definitely relates to this question. (laughs) Was it turns out in London, a lot of apartments don't have closets. And so there's something you can buy from Ikea called the Pax wardrobe. And it's basically, you just build a closet. And it was a popular product here. And it was certainly a very complicated one. And if you bought one, you are highly likely to hire somebody to help you from TaskRabbit or anywhere because it's really hard to assemble. Most people assemble it on the ground and then just, you know, stand it up. But it's so heavy, you need a second person. What we didn't realize when we launched our first partnership with IKEA in one city in Wembley, London, was how many people didn't have closets. And so PAX Wardrobes was like the number one thing 
And so we underestimated how many taskers we would need to staff PECs wardrobes. And we also underestimated something else, which is that you needed two people to do the task. And our platform up until that point was only built for you to hire me, one person to hire one person. We didn't have the ability to hire two people for a task. And so when we launched, we were trying to figure out how to scramble and get two people on a task and like hack something in the back end. And eventually we built the proper software to do it. But the trick in London is that the ceilings aren't high enough to build it on the ground and stand it up. You actually have to finish it stood up. And so that's why it was so important to have two people with a certain kind of strength and ability to do it. So I found that, I mean, I share that story because it was at the first launch, right after we started working with IKEA, it was before the acquisition. We really wanted the partnership to work. We weren't even thinking about an acquisition. And we're like, oh no, like the customer experience sucks. How do we fix this? And the team really rallied and scrambled. And I will tell you, Chris, what happened for all the people where we could make it work, it was a beautiful experience. The net promoter score skyrocketed. It was so high. The delivering on something called first promise, which is do I get the thing that I wanted from Ikea? And does it come on the day that they said it was going to come? And are all the parts there? And if they are, can we correct it? And can we fix it? And we were able to deliver on that hundred percent. And so it was beautiful to see like some of those happening, but then this scrambling of how to really deal with this phenomenon of the PAX wardrobe and the closets in London, which we did not anticipate. In our business, we were operating in London. The service was operating in London. It's not like we hadn't been in London before, but the volume just went to a level that forced us to make a change in our operation and our software and our product and, you know, to create a better experience. That's amazing. It's such an interesting story. And I mean, I noticed that in San Francisco too, I would see people write with like the wardrobes from Ikea, but I never thought about, right, like how difficult it might be to build or, you know, you need someone around and then always having a roommate in San Francisco, there was always, you know, a second pair of hands, which was nice, but sometimes things are just way too heavy. And I remember I got a really nice dresser from Ikea and I was putting it together, went to like, you know, Home Depot to get, you know, electric screwdriver. And I spent a lot of time watching Stranger Things and putting it together. And I wish at that point I was up on TaskRabbit because it would have made my life so much, so much better. And they probably would have built it so much more stably than I have. Yes, they would have. For sure. <laughs> they definitely would have. But no, it's so interesting to write to think about the many facets of it of one, like that demand, which is a lovely problem to have. But at the same time, how do we create a great experience, you know, through and through you might need people? How do we make sure the product experience works for you? And delivering on that promise, right? You're telling customers that they're going to get one thing and making sure that they get that with ease and that you can fix anything that might come up, you know, along the way. And so I just love that customer empathy and focus. I mean, I think that's like, you know, a big theme of your career, right? Of thinking about how do you support customers? How do you bring them the best products possible and then service them too? And so it's wonderful to see that, right? Just kind of coming into fruition, this amazing story in Wembley. And so I guess, you know, coming back to 
that kind of, you know, scaling, there's so many aspects, right, of when you're running a business around the product, around finance, operations, the team, and then especially it gets more complicated when you have a two-sided marketplace. And so I'm curious to hear more, I guess, maybe on the people side or even just like the infrastructure that you kind of thought about creating to allow for a team to be so nimble when presented with these kinds of problems like, you know, dressers in Wembley. Yeah. Building the team at TaskRabbit was a lot of fun. I mean, everybody, when I joined the company, we had about 60 people. The company had been around already for a few years and had a wonderful set of core values. And everybody was there for the mission. Everybody was there to make everyday life easier for everyday people. It was like core to the hiring process, even though we hadn't written it down yet. And so I joined something that I knew was going to be scalable and global. And we had a fantastic foundation. We had to build on it. We had to adapt as we scaled, especially as we moved out of San Francisco and like started hiring people in other locations. We built a team in Austin. We built a team in London. And so that changes the culture a little bit. And it brought me back to a lot of my time at Google, where we were growing very fast and hiring people in different locations. And how do we preserve the culture of what we are as a company, but also let those offices be independent and have their own flavor. And so the Austin team had its own flavor. The London team at TaskRabbit had its own flavor, but we still always centered around our core values. After we got acquired by IKEA, we reset the core values, not because we didn't like what we had, but because we were entering a new era for the company. And it was important to revisit and make sure we were all aligned. And we ended up keeping one of our core values, which was around being neighborly. And it was the one from the very beginning that to this day, if there was ever a compass and an anchor in the middle, like that's the anchor. And then around that, we built everything else. And so our top core value was caring deeply. And it was caring deeply about each other as teammates. It was caring deeply about our community, the clients and the taskers. And to your point, having the empathy that we needed to build a really great experience. And so those values really translated into how we operated, how we worked together, from how we made decisions in meetings, how we encouraged all voices, how we told people they should wash their coffee cups, you know, because the tea drinkers don't like those coffee stains. Like there was all sorts of like, you know, caring deeply happening. But there was also caring deeply for the taskers. We spent a lot of time getting feedback from our taskers on the product experience, on the app, on their offline experience and working with clients. We spent a lot of time getting feedback from clients on how we could make this experience better and using that real data and customer insights to drive our decisions on what priorities we set for product development and organizational change as a company. That's just so cool to think about, right? You know, the scaling globally and bringing that culture of, you know, deeply caring. And it's, you know, many times like the little things like, you know, washing your mug that kind of sets this ethos and tone and foundation to help people, you know, look from the coffee to, you know, being helpful in other areas of the workforce and in your day-to-day work. And then also, right, extending that empathy to your clients and, you know, doing journey mapping and understanding what the experience looks like and how do you make it a wonderful time. And I knew when I was, you know, telling you about the story about moving, 
I was like, oh, I hope they get here on time. You know, I'm kind of pressed for time. And it was such a wonderful experience. I like found two incredible movers. They were there on time. They were so nice that my furniture got there all in one piece and no scratches. And the payment was easy. It was able to tip them. And it was just so seamless. I couldn't have imagined a better way to move, even with all the stress. And so it's really amazing to see, right, all of that hard work kind of coming to fruition. And I guess, you know, around the scaling culture and, but at the same time, right, keeping kind of a unique flavor of what like you might have in like Austin or in London, how do you do that, right? You know, when you have such a big team and you have so many locations, how do you help instill and help people, I guess, get excited about these norms and kind of implement them in action? I believe that repetition doesn't spoil the prayer. And so a lot of it was that, and it wasn't just the signage and the branding and making sure the values were on the walls of every office, but it was how we operated. So all the way from how we brought people into the company through how we promoted people and rewarded people to how we communicated at our all hands about what we were doing. And so we institutionalized a lot of the culture and what we didn't try to do was say like, well, this thing about the culture is so important. Like when I got there, we were celebrating everybody's birthday every day. Well, obviously that doesn't scale. And so that piece of the culture went away. We went to like, let's do this once a month, <laughs> you know, <laughs> celebrate everybody's birthday in that month. Otherwise we would all be overweight from all the cookies and donuts and cakes and whatever it is that people want for their birthday. But what mattered is celebration and celebration of all of who we are and making sure that people felt like we were a family and part of family is like celebrating the important moments in our lives, like, you know, your birthday. And so I think extrapolating out what the essence of culture is that you want to maintain and not the tactics was an important step in scaling the culture. And then the scaling part was institutionalizing. So we created you know, questions in our interview process on our values and how do we ask questions that give us a sense of how much these people showing up already live our values and what areas might we have concerns. We had some awards we would do that, you know, an employee-led award that basically recognized the person who really exemplified the values every quarter. And everybody got to nominate everybody and people would win from all the different departments across the company and people from smaller departments who thought they would never win, would win too. <laughs> and it was because it was about the values and really institutionalizing what it is that we were doing. And then when we did performance reviews and promotions and all of that, we looked at, you know, what we were doing, a reflection of the values of the company. So people didn't get promoted for just delivering on their metrics, but you had to really do it in a way that reflected our values. And so I think having those things institutionalized really helped scale because I couldn't be there. You know, my president couldn't be there. Like we're in different offices in different places, but as long as we were delivering the same message, repeating the same message and having these systems that supported that message, it helped us scale. 
I love that. I mean, kind of the phrase repetition doesn't spoil the prayer and just leading by example, right? And ingraining it in every piece of the process from hiring to promotion, right? Helps people kind of start to feel it and live it. And then hopefully, right, they're already living it before they even come. And that's just so insightful around, you know, extracting that essence rather than like, oh, there's these tactics that you have to follow. But how do you distill that kind of ethos and make sure people feel that throughout the organization? You know, I guess kind of, you know, with that in mind around kind of like this leading by example, I'd love to hear a little bit more about, you know, how you thought about leading authentically at TaskRabbit, especially, you know, being a person of color and feeling like, you know, you could show up as your true self and authentic self and kind of what that looked like for you. It was relatively easy at TaskRabbit because by then it had gotten to a place in my career and in my own self that I felt, you know, even more comfortable in my own skin. And so when I got to the company, it was really a moment of realizing that I joined this company because I felt like this could be a family for me. And the feeling was mutual when Leah and I went through the interview process. So it was a safe space. I wanted to create that space for everybody else. And I recognized that at the time we were not doing well on diversity on all dimensions, especially women in engineering, African-Americans, Hispanic people, we just weren't doing well. And so I felt that it was important to highlight that. And as a representation of a lot of these things, as a woman, as a black woman, I knew that I represented what I wanted us to look like, the diversity of what I wanted to see. I also represented the diversity of our community of our taskers and our clients and our company didn't yet reflect that diversity either. And so because we had a platform that really was for everyone, I couldn't have a company that wasn't for everyone and it wasn't represented by everyone. So it gave me a great way to think about, well, how do we create that environment and what makes it easy for that to exist. And it was creating a space where people felt like they could bring their whole self to work every day and setting expectations around diversity goals for hiring and changing recruiters, which we did when we were not successful in interviewing enough female engineers. They said, we couldn't find any. We're like, great, we'll just go find somebody else who can find some because we know that they are there. And so as we're drawing our best, I was like, great, if that's your best, we're going to go and find somebody who can do better. And really setting that tone for not accepting excuses for something that we know we have the power to change. And so I think the intentionality that I had around it, that our management team had around it, because we needed the entire management team to be supportive of it, gave people the space to believe that this is a place for me, even with my own awkwardness and my differences and everything that I have. And so when we started our affinity groups at TaskRabbit, we did it from the bottoms up. They're like, well, how do you guys want to do affinity? We should decide. And I was like, no, at Google, we did it from the bottoms up. I started the Black Googler Network. There were many other networks that were started by employees who felt like they wanted to build a greater sense of belonging and community. And so we did the same thing. And people came up with lots of traditional things like women and black people, but also untraditional things like the introverts wanted a group, 
We had a non-denominational faith-based group that decided they wanted to form something. And so we let all those flowers bloom because we wanted people to feel like this is the kind of place where whatever was important to them, they could have it discussed it and be celebrated. That's wonderful. I think it's so important, right, to be able to find your crew, you know, at work. And, you know, not to say that it's not everyone, but, you know, sometimes you need support of folks that have similar experiences or whether you're an introvert and, you know, it's like, how do I show up to this meeting and just kind of bring that energy and still find time to recharge? And I think that's just really wonderful, right, to create that space from kind of the top down in, you know, demonstrating, right, that it's important for us to reflect the community that we're serving, the people that are using our products and that we can make it happen. Happen. And especially, you know, being kind of unrelenting and like, we can solve this, right? We can find the female engineers who are out there because they exist. We know they exist. There is an incredible pipeline from amazing schools, right? You know, where women are outpacing men in, you know, tertiary education these days. And, right, we have to do better. And so I just, I really admire how you kind of have gone about doing that at TaskRabbit. And I guess, you know, looking at kind of those, you know, creating those spaces and allowing and empowering people, right, kind of from the bottom up to create, you know, affinity groups, I'd love to hear more about, you know, starting the Black Googler Network and, you know, maybe some of your inspiration and kind of, you know, at a large organization, how you thought about, you know, when you weren't the CEO, right, trying to make it happen. Yeah, it was super selfish. I just didn't feel like there were enough Black people at the company. And I was having a lot of fun working at Google. And I just wondered why there weren't more people that looked like me here doing this fun thing. I had gotten a puppy. I was bringing him to work every day. Like, it was really fun. And so it really sparked just a desire to feel more a sense of community, to really create an opportunity for the Black community to participate in the wealth building that was happening in tech, the growth that I was experiencing, working with some of the smartest people I've ever met in my whole life, and the fun that I was having. So I just decided to just collect. I started seeing us around the building, and I just would say, hey, I think I'm going to create this alias. Can I add you to it? Because HR wouldn't give me like the list because it's like confidential information. I get that. Like, you can't just give this person in the finance team this list and you know what she's going to do with it, which is totally fine. So I just collected and then they collected. So we finally had a little bit of an alias and he kind of came up with, here's what we want to do. What do we want? Well, we want to attract more people to Google who look like us. We want to figure out how to stay here and we want to sort of be a part of the community. And so in the attract side, I just went to what was then our new head of people, Laszlo Bach. We had just started and I put together a presentation and I went to Cheryl Sandberg and I was like, Cheryl, I, you know, I have this idea. Can you help me? And she's like, yes, it's great. You should go and, you know, present it. I'm like, no, I'm not senior enough. She's like, no, you are. Like, you're the most senior person that can actually go do this. <laughs> and so I went to Laszlo and I was like, here, I need some money, a couple hundred thousand dollars to go out and do recruiting at HBCUs. We had never really done anything at HBCUs. That sounds crazy now, but we had not. Going to some of these majority schools and really having events with the Black-focused organizations at those schools, which all the traditional banks did, that Goldman Sachs, I went to Wharton. They all came, they had stuff, really nice dinners, really expensive food when you're a college student, really good. And we weren't doing any of that. We thought people were just going to show up and want to work at Google. And it just didn't work that way for our community. And so 
we got some budget to go out and start these initiatives, which then led to a focused recruiting from HBCUs. It led to the creation of this internship program called BOL, Building Opportunities for Leadership Development, where we really focused on diverse interns coming into the company. It led to David Drummond, who was the chief legal officer at the time and like the most senior black person in the company, becoming our champion at that level with Larry and Sergey and Eric to push for some of these changes. And so we got momentum and we got people excited about, and it wasn't that nobody cared about diversity. It was just, you needed a catalyst. You needed somebody to start the idea and make it a good idea and convince, you know, the person with the purse strings to give you the resources to do it and prove that you're right. And once we proved that we were right, which was like, there's a hotbed of talent over here that's overlooked, doesn't understand Google. And we got to go out and work hard, just like a lot of other companies do and bring them in. Once we were able to prove that we were able to be successful. So BGN grew. And when I moved to India, I handed it over to someone else to run because I was going to go live in India for a year, but we grew. We started having community events. We started celebrating really important holidays inside the company. We started having events where we talked about our culture and panels and conversations and a lot of the things that made you feel like this is not just a place I show up and go to work. This is a place that understands all of who I am. And I took a lot of that when I went to TaskRabbit and also now with a lot of the boards and the venture work that I'm doing. It's amazing. It's really cool to see, right? Kind of this grassroots, you know, you had a need and you're like, how can I make this happen? And how can I see more people like me in the hallways? And how do I, you know, be that catalyst to, you know, help people see the vision and the way that they can, can contribute, right? Because like you said, people do want to help, but they don't always know how. And so, you know, helping them kind of see that is so important so that they can help you along in making that change. And I've actually seen, you know, I think the fruits of your labors, I was an MLT, you know, when I was applying to business school and there was focused recruiting from Google, you know, seeing a diverse panel of people who work there in really cool, you know, functions, talking to us about their experience at Google, applying to Google and making themselves available to help us think about how we could see ourselves there, how we could prepare for the interviews. And so that was really incredible. And then when I was at Google last summer, just having this community of, you know, people, for example, in product management, which I feel like, you know, as a product manager and, you know, being black, I never really saw that many, even in San Francisco. And then seeing at Google, this huge listserv of folks getting together, supporting each other, and just willing to have a coffee with me and talk to me about their career path and how I could be successful was so, so incredible. I just, I felt so like warm and excited to have the support that I had been looking for for a really long time. So it was really wonderful to see and hear about kind of how it kind of came about and seeing it, you know, still thriving to this day. Very good. It's a great story from you too. <laughs> I guess I'd love to hear about, you know, thinking maybe about your career path and thinking, you know, how you kind of thought about charting your course, you know, from, you know, your experiences at Google to becoming COO and then eventually CEO. And I guess even now, you know, on boards and things like that. But I guess I'd love, maybe we can focus it maybe, you know, <laughs> from CEO to CEO, but would love to hear some of the, I don't know, advice maybe that you have or things that you thought about as you were crafting your career. I don't think I wrote down, be a CEO when I was a kid, some people wrote that down. It's like, I didn't even know what a CEO kind of, I didn't really know what it was. <laughs> I did have this ambition to retire early, right? And early for me was 40 when I was 14. So, you know, old 
40 was old. I don't think that's old anymore for the record, but at the time it was. And so I always was a very sort of, you know, create a schedule, create a timeline, execute the plan person. And that's what I did. I went to undergrad. I worked for a couple of years. I went to business school. I got a job. I, you know, worked hard. People recognized my work. I got promoted, right? I wrote all the things down that I should do. And then it was like, all right, I'm successful. By, by any stretch of any imagination of anybody that grew up the way that I grew up. And then I got some advice, which was just to be serendipitous. One of my bosses at Google said to me, Stacey, you're so organized. Wherever you want to go, you're going to get there. Wherever that is, you write that down, you're going to get there. But he's like, sometimes there's things that come along that may not be part of your plan, but could be better for you. So just be open to serendipity. And that was the perfect timing for that advice, because at the same time, I had gone to a talk at Google, which we hosted, the PGN hosted, where John Thompson, who was the CEO of Symantec at the time, came and did a talk. And he talked about careers where you have to kind of move around and you take operating roles and then you take functional roles and you have line roles. And in order to become a CEO, this is sort of how you do it, if you wanted to do it. And that's what he did. So I was like, oh, I think I got to go do some line roles because I've done these functional roles. And around the time I got that serendipity feedback, I got the opportunity to move out of finance and into the operations team at Google. And that's when I went from managing a small team of people to a large team of people from 14 to, you know, what was 200 people immediately. And that scale, that difference, I don't think I would have taken that had I not had that plug around serendipity or that plug around, okay, line roles and functional roles. And by doing that, it just changed the trajectory of my career. I mean, frankly, you know, you go from managing Fortune 200, now you're building general management skills. You're managing not doers of things, but managers. And that's a very different type of leadership. And as I continued to grow as a manager of managers, I went to India and I was managing leaders. So now I was leading a team of leaders, which is an even more different type of leadership, more adaptive, more inspirational. And so it prepared me to become the COO of a thing. Now I can lead different functions. I can lead leaders of those functions. And that's, so when the opportunity to go to TaskRabbit came up, it was great. I could go be a COO, lead different functions, work with a great founder. And in Silicon Valley, it was very, you know, supported that founders would find a great partner, thought partner with them. So I was Leah's thought partner as her COO. And you don't know what being the CEO is like until you become it, frankly. And you think you know, because I was like, okay, the COO I got, I'm managing all these functions, everything except product and engineering. Leah does a lot of the external facing stuff. You know, we go to board meetings together. How different could this really be? And so when she decided that she was ready to move on and become the chairwoman of the company, and I stepped into the CEO role, I was mostly right, but there were some things that I was wrong about. I was mostly right where, okay, I take on two more functions. I manage products, I manage engineering. I now have to go do press. I have to talk to you know, reporters and others about the company, which was a little different, frankly, than talking to customers and partners. 
but I got used to it with the media training and all of it that comes along with that. But what was different was this level of responsibility that you now feel as a CEO for the people that have chosen to allocate some period of their life to working with you and building the thing that you have a vision for. So there's a level of responsibility that comes with that, that you don't have until you have the job and your obligations that you feel for making sure you give them the best chance of success as possible. And then it's lonely. There's only one CEO at the company. And so how do you find peers to support you? How do you find places for support was something I had to also go and navigate. And everybody, if you want to be a CEO, go be one. And it's an amazing experience, but it's certainly not without its learnings. If you assume you already know everything you need to do to make it happen, you just don't. <laughs> so. Wow. I mean, such a cool, you know, kind of way of framing and thinking about it. You know, the serendipity thing, it's actually something my father frequently says to me. He's like, you know, don't be myopic in your focus. Don't close doors. Think about, you know, things will kind of weird to put it saying fall from the sky, but you know, opportunities will come up that you may have never thought about. You would never have said yes to in the past, but you know, think about it. How could it give you a new experience? How could it be fun? How could it stretch you and, you know, make you think about, I don't know, your life, your career, from a different perspective. I and mean, similarly, you know, I was for a very long time thought I'd be a lawyer, never thought I'd go into tech and product management. And, you know, here I am today, which is it's just so fun to, you know, have kind of let that journey happen. And right, you kind of go sometimes down circuitous paths, even though you might have written down very linearly, okay, these are the steps I'm going to take. This is the time I think it's going to take, and I'm going to get there. And it's less of a line many times and more of, you know, kind of an interesting kind of winding route, but really, really cool to see, you know, from your perspective, you know, thinking about, okay, Okay, you know, moving from finance to ops, thinking about leading teams and leading leaders. And then, you know, that contrast in being a CEO and how, you know, it's some of the same, but, you know, still being open to, right, it's going to be different. And then how do I adapt to this new challenge and adapt to, you know, the new responsibility and, right, it's so important to think about, you know, the customers and also the people that are, right, spending time working at the organization and how do you ensure that it's an enriching opportunity. And I've kind of been getting a taste of that, you know, leading my own startup and obviously on a much smaller scale these days and having interns, but thinking about, you know, their unpaid interns and how do I make it an enriching opportunity so that they get the skills they want, they get the exposure that they're looking for so that it can enrich and help them build a foundation for the future of their career. And it's something I had never thought about, you know, being a product manager in the past, leading a functional role. And it's really eye-opening, kind of like you said. So very, very cool. So Stacey, I'd love to hear about your experience, you know, being a founding member of the SoftBank's Opportunity Fund, where you're focused on investing, you know, across stages and into Black, Latinx, and Native American entrepreneurs. I'd love to hear about how you started the fund and how you're thinking about investing in these amazing entrepreneurs. Well, thank you. This is one of the most fun times in my life, actually, starting the SoftBank Opportunity Fund. It was an idea that came together in 48 hours. After George Floyd was murdered, two other friends of mine, Marcelo, Clory, and Paul Judge, we are Henry Crown Fellows together, which is this wonderful program based out of the Aspen Institute that brings together 20 people and we're all entrepreneurs in some way. And it really helps us take our success and make it more significant. So it's sort of their tagline is from success to significant because we've all been successful people, 
And the question is, does, how does that really matter? How do you make it matter? How do we make it significant? So we've gone through this program. We were class of 2016. So we've gone through this program. And after George Floyd was murdered, the three of us were thinking individually, wow, we've done a lot. And yet here we still are. And Marcelo kicked off a WhatsApp conversation of, well, let's do more. What if we stood up a fund and invested in Black, Latinx, Native American founders? And if we did that, let's make it bigger than anything we know. So we picked 100 million because all we could find in that few hours was that the largest one was around 50 million. And SoftBank became the sole LP in the fund. Marcella was at SoftBank at the time. And we had $100 million. And then we went on TV the next day and announced it. That's it. And we didn't have an infrastructure. We didn't have a team. <laughs> but there was another guy named Shu Nayata who works at SoftBank, who became the fourth person on the investment committee and built it. And he and Paul hired people, pulled people from the greater SoftBank, hired people outside of SoftBank to stand up this early stage fund. And at the time, we didn't want to focus on stage initially. We didn't want to focus on sector. We knew we wanted to invest in tech, but not any specific sector in tech because we did want to focus specifically on Black, Latinx, and Native American. And so is it BIPOC? We're like, no, it's not. It's Black, Latinx, and Native American. And I remember when we wrote, you go to the website, it's what it says, like, should we make this diverse? No, I don't want to change the word because I want to be intentional about what we're doing. And so since then, we've seen over 2,000 companies. We've invested in over 70 companies across all sectors in tech. Most of the companies are C, Series A and Series B companies, mostly given the size of our fund. Half of those companies have raised additional rounds of funding at much higher valuations. We've had a couple of exits already. And so there is no pipeline problem. If you focus on doing something, it can be done. We recently announced that the fund is now an evergreen fund where we'll continue to invest in early stage founders who are Black, Latinx, or Native American. And I'm just proud of what we've been able to do in under two years. We hit our two-year anniversary in just a couple of months. And it's one of the most rewarding, fun things I've ever done. Wow. The stories just keep getting better. It's so crazy to think within 48 hours that this came together with three other incredible folks through a WhatsApp convo. And then, you know, going to the media, announcing an incredible fund, right? Larger than any other fund that had existed and, you know, hiring people, bringing people from SoftBank onto the team and just the success of even, you know, already having exits. And I love, like you said, the intentionality of the focus, right? On this community and not trying to make it easy to digest and let's, should we use diversity? Should we use a different word? No, let's focus on Black, Latinx and Native Americans. And it's so wonderful to hear, right? That success of it being an evergreen fund that it's going to continue and, Wow, just that's so exciting. And then going into our, one of our last questions, I'd love to hear more about your experience being on boards like HP, Noom, and StockX. It's so important to have good governance for a high-growing or fast-growing company or even you know, a public company. And so I'd love to hear a little bit more about you know, your experience getting onto the board and even just thinking about the composition and the value that these board members are adding to the company. Great. I have been on the HP board. It's my first board. 
I joined in 2015, so now almost seven years. And it's sort of like your favorite because it's the first, but that's really it. But it's the one that I've learned the most. I learned what it meant to get on a board because once you get on one board, then all the rest sort of happen in some way. But the first one is the hardest one because you're an unproven entity among the people who make these decisions. So my strategy was to tell everybody that I wanted to be on a board, to have a large set of criteria, which was I was like a digital person and I could be on a board of a company that needed some digital thinking. I didn't want to travel too much because I had young kids at the time. And I wanted to be on a board where I could contribute to the peer group, but also learn from the peers on that board. And so I was lucky enough to, you know, meet the recruiter for the HP board and also have met Meg Whitman at an event who was chairing the greater HP that was about to be split in two. And so the opportunity came up because they were splitting the company in two, which created like more than 10 board seats that had it to be filled all at once at the time of the split. Most boards are looking for one or two people over the next two or three years. This is like, we have to do this now in the next six months. So it created that opportunity to join that board. And because I had an existing relationship or existing meeting, not even a relationship with Meg, it was more like a meeting. And just people sort of knew that I was interested. I made the slate and I interviewed and I earned the spot. And it's been a great experience. I have learned so much from joining this, from this board. One is I was able to get on some more boards. So I got on Nordstrom and then I recently joined some private company boards, Noom and StockX, two companies that I care a whole lot about from a mission and a strategy purpose and just the people there and feel like I could help with my public company board experience, help these fast growing private companies. But I also learned how to be a better CEO. I just seeing the other side of being the board member helped me understand how to communicate, how to interact, how to leverage my board in the best way possible to be successful as a CEO. And a lot of times boards don't want their CEOs to be on a board because they think it's a distraction. But I fundamentally believe that it will make your CEO a better CEO if they have some board experience because they'll see the other side. They can have the empathy. They can walk in that person's shoes and they can create more context about how they leverage their board. Boards now today, I mean, there's been a surge in diversity on boards coming from a number of areas, government, companies, banks, all requiring some of these things in order to do business with them or to in order to operate, which I think is fantastic. And I love the momentum around creating more diversity on boards. It's been a great opportunity for me to be on a board with now Nordstrom has three black women on that board. HP has two black women on the board and StockX has two black women. Like I just, it's just <laughs> wonderful. I'm not the only. And I think that kinds of thing can continue because what it does is it shapes the conversation. There's a conversation sooner about equity in the company. There's a call from the CEO of Nordstrom when there's a racial incident at a store. And what do we do? We obviously have to act, but we want to act in the best way possible. What's your advice? 
like you can have that conversation and it can be handled well. And so there's a lot of things that board service gives to companies beyond just the governance, which is really important, which is execution and doing it in a way that's equitable and fair and inclusive and holding leaders accountable to creating the environments that we all want to see in the world. It's wonderful to see that change across many companies that many of us are very familiar with and seeing that change and then the value, not just in governance, not just in advice, but in execution. And how do you not only lead by example in thinking about equity early, but also when there are things that come up and sometimes crises, how do you handle them in a way that reflects the company's values and treats people well? And so I think that's just so wonderful to see that change happening and these conversations happening early. Earlier. And I think that brings us to our last question, which we always ask, which is, what is your boldest, most unique prediction that folks might feel is a moonshot, but that you believe will happen in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, I believe that we are at the precipice of changing the face of wealth creation. And I think about the Opportunity Fund and our $100 million just two years ago. And recently, another fund raised $460 million you know, led by a black man. And two years ago, I'm not even sure that could have happened. So I am so glad that we surpassed that hundred million because what this is really about is changing the face of wealth creation. In the next five to 10 years, I really believe that's what's going to happen. We're not just going to see companies becoming billion dollar companies because we will led by diverse people. We're not just going to see diverse asset managers raising funds, we're going to create institutions and we will have institutions that are diverse. And then we can start having some real conversations because I don't even think we started the real conversation. And then we can start having the real conversation. That's what I see. I love it. I think it's interesting to think about that structure of the stepping stones that help you get there, seeing the opportunity fund, seeing new funds being raised. And that's just some of the beginning. You see wealth managers, you see unicorns led by diverse folks, but then also institutions. And how do you create these systems that help propel a diverse set of folks, whether it's to boards, whether it's to give them opportunities that they've earned to create incredible companies and to facilitate that going forward, not just as a one-off thing, but as an evergreen opportunity to create real change globally. And so I really love thinking about it from that frame. And I think it just gives me a lot of hope and a lot of excitement on what we hope to see and achieve in the coming years. 